We're going to be in Acts 28, uh, but since this is sort of an expositional sermon series, uh, I'll go ahead and let's uh, sort of remind ourselves how we actually got to Acts 28. Uh, now, if you remember, in Acts 21, Paul gets arrested in the temple, uh, and he addresses a bunch of people in the temple and basically sticks his thumb in their eyes in a really holy and, you know, before the Lord kind of way. Uh, he, gets, he gets arrested, and uh, he reveals his Roman citizenship to the centurion that has him in chains because they're about to go have him scourged. And scourging a Roman citizen, that's a no-no. Um, and so he goes before Felix after that, and Felix, kind of not knowing really what's going on, about to set him free. But Paul knows that um, he's about to get trounced by the people in Jerusalem on top of the fact that the Lord had actually shown up to him in a vision and told him that he needed to go to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar, which is the right of every Roman citizen. Uh, he goes before Agrippa as well, uh, and therefore, he, he, after that, he sort of sets off on what, what winds up being a very treacherous journey to Rome. Uh, basically, uh, all sorts of troubles at sea and everything like that, and he gets shipwrecked on Malta, okay, which is where we pick up. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 16 verses. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James, uh, so that's why it may be a little bit different than yours. Now, when they had escaped... They then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of a leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went in to him and prayed. And he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, so the, the rest of the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And on another day, south wind blew, and the next day we came to Petulio. There we found brethren, who were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and the three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. Now, um, y'all are used to, Mike said that he usually preaches for about 45 minutes. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm used to preaching for about 20 because I'm used to preaching at chapel. I'm also not as rhetorically gifted as Mike. And since I believe that people should only preach as far as their rhetorical threshold allows them to, I'm not going to torture you probably with that extra 15 to 20 minutes, okay? Um, and I don't have all the cute little stories that Mike has. I wish I did. You know, he tells, he preaches, he tells these great stories that really illustrate the point, and I'm like, God, I'm just not a pastor, I'm more of a teacher, so uh, that's going to be sort of where we're going to go on this, um, but we read a chapter like this, and it's, it's not as bad as, say, 
um, like a genealogy chapter in Genesis, you know, the ones that you flip through, you're like, eh, is like Genesis 36, and it's like the lineage of Esau, and you're like, why does this matter? Ironically enough, like, I, I actually sat down and listened to a man talk about the genealogy of Esau for like an hour straight, and he was great, but I, I don't have those chops, so I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, but we have one of these, and we're like, uh, I don't really know where to go with this, right? I mean, there's not really, a, if it's one of Paul's letters, you can talk about, you know, the actual point that Paul is making to that church. Or if it's um, the narrative with David and Bathsheba, uh, you know that the story is being told to illustrate a point of, you know, what David did and he was naughty and how he repented and how Nathan was instrumental in all of it. Uh, But here we basically have Paul getting bit by a snake, shaking it off, the natives going, wow, him healing um, Publius's father of a fever and dysentery, healing a couple more people, and then actually making it to Rome. So that doesn't seem to be a real overarching um, sort of point to all of this. And I started to think to myself, well, what is the application here? And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, um, well, if you get shipwrecked, always make sure it's on Malta because they treat people unusually well, right? (laughs) Hospitality is fantastic. So that's where you want to be, okay? Shipwrecked, be on Malta. Or, you know, if you're gathering firewood, make sure that you check for snakes first. Or camping is inherently dangerous, so don't go camping. I'm not an outdoorsy kind of guy. I just don't, no. Uh, Or, you know, um, always be nice to the apostle that gets shipwrecked on your island. You may need him to treat your father's, you know, tummy problems. Uh, But that's certainly not the point of why the Holy Spirit inspired this portion of Scripture to actually be included. And we run into uh, portions of Scripture like this that don't seem to have uh, an actual rhetorical point to them, like a point... Uh, like an exhortational aspect to it, it gives us a good opportunity to go and look at it in light of the themes, the greater overarching themes that run from Genesis to Revelation. And that's kind of where I'm going to lead us today, okay? We're going to look basically at healing because sometimes I don't think we actually sit there and really take to heart uh, the import of the healing narratives in the scriptures. Uh, like We live in an era of modern medicine. If we have a headache, we go pop some Advil and we're cool, right? And aspirin was first put into like you know, tablet form and powder form in 1899. Before that, people who had headaches, just, they just dealt with it. Um, and so we've medicalized everything. Sickness and illness doesn't happen in the home. Death doesn't happen in the home. It happens secured, sort of sequestered over there in the hospitals, those buildings that are meant for that. And so sometimes we look at the healings in Scripture and we think that they're mere parlor tricks, right? It's kind of like... A, it's almost like, uh, you know, this is just sort of a little razzle-dazzle to get you interested, and then you'll go ahead and sit and listen to me while I teach you from the scriptures. Um, and I don't think that's really what, what, what they had in mind when, they were, when, when Luke's recounting Paul's run-in on Malta uh, with the serpent. So um, let's start from the beginning and sort of trace it through, keeping in mind how this all fits into what God's overarching purpose is in history. And in what his purpose is in revealing the scriptures to us. Now, God's overarching agenda in history is the furtherance of his kingdom for his glory and for the better and for the good of his people. Right? Okay, well, how does the healing factor into that? And that's the question that I really want to ask. And the attendant questions of, well, how does it how does that factor in with salvation? Uh, what is healing symbolic of? Uh, And a whole host of other questions come along for the ride, and hopefully we'll address those as well. Um, Now, 
Let's go ahead and start with the Old Testament. And where we're going to start in the Old Testament, it might as well just go ahead and start at the beginning, right? And we know that God, when he created this world, and when he fashioned it for his crown jewel, mankind, us, it was good. It was very good. And there, was no, there wasn't death and disease in the way that, there wasn't death and disease there. Upon the fall, death enters for mankind. And of course, with death, the, you know, the things that happen between now and death being bodily corruption and the degradation of, of our corporeal nature and everything like that. Uh, so basically, sickness, illness, uh, basically become part of what it means to live in a fallen world. And we just, and, and, but we got to remember that that's not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not the way that it will be in the end. And so God doesn't let things into his creation that really have no revelatory sort of element to them, right? Anything that God has, anything that's in the world, either positively or negatively, reflects something about the truth that he is trying to communicate to us, or perhaps through us. Um, and therefore, illness, or the healing from illness, we need to basically, we need to get a handle on that. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. All right, I just, you know, I don't know most of you, and, you know, when I speak to my kids and they just kind of stare at me, I just kind of, but, uh, <laughs> I'm like, they're teenagers, but you guys aren't, I just want to make sure that I'm not boring you to tears. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll kind of, you know, do a little dance, and when I tell a joke and you don't laugh, I'll tug on my ear, and then you'll know that you need to chuckle, okay? <laughs> that deal? Okay, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, well, in Genesis, after the fall, you know, healing and sickness actually don't wind up being a huge uh, theme, uh, you know, Genesis was written for other purposes than sort of revealing that theme in Scripture. Uh, there are a couple of mentions of barrenness uh, and stuff like that, but really no, you know, no discussion of illness per se. But when we start in Exodus, we get we get it pretty hardcore because of the ten plagues that hit uh, Egypt um, through Moses and Aaron over the successive um, time that, that those plagues were happening. Three or four out of the ten actually were health, like disease or death related. And I say three of the four because it's actually uh, unclear as to whether the, uh, whether the third plague was lice, which some translations render it, or whether it was gnats. Uh, but either way, you know, lice, a very mild health problem, just kind of an annoyance. Gnats, kind of an annoyance. Uh, but when we see the fifth plague, the fifth plague was actually very much disease related. It was a strong pestilence which killed the Egyptian livestock. Right? left the Israelite livestock alone, killed the Egyptian livestock. So disease comes to the fore really quickly as what it means when, when the kingdom of God uh, comes up and butts up against the kingdoms of this world. When we have the kingdoms of covenantal wholeness and healing bumping up against the, co- against the kingdoms of death and disorder. And God says, okay, well, I tell you what, I'm going to rein in my grace and I'm going to let you have it in terms of what, what the consequences are of your rebellion, what the consequences of your sin really are. And I'm going to show it to you in very graphic detail and in escalating detail as these plagues keep ratcheting up over time. Now, the sixth plague winds up being boils, not on the livestock, on the people. And that's, that's probably a very, very, they, they kind of looked at that and went, wow, something really wrong is going on. Okay? And, of course, we all remember what the tenth plague is. It was the, uh, it was the plague of the death of the firstborn. So, disease and death being shown very, very clearly as consequences of rebellion against the king of the universe. 
And that, that kind of should give us a little bit of pause that God uses these things to judge. Now, he not only uses these things to judge others, if you keep reading, if you actually get past Leviticus, which <laughs> I'm going to read the Bible straight through this year. Genesis, you're like, wow, that's pretty fascinating. You know, some of the parts, a little bit tawdry. Uh, and then you get to Exodus, and it's like a sci-fi, you know, adventure. It's fantastic. <laughs> and then you get a little bit kind of beat down because in the, you know, there's those chapters about they go, okay, here's what the temple should look like. Mm-hmm. And here's what the temple does look like. And you're like, oh, gosh, I hope Leviticus is better. And then the first seven chapters of Leviticus are uh, like the seven types of offerings. And you're like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to run back to Philippians because it's short and gives me warm fuzzies, right? Um, but if you get to Numbers, Numbers is one of my favorite books because it has all sorts of like fun stories that people don't talk about very often. Like uh, in Numbers 21, uh, the people are grumbling. They're doing the whole, why did you lead us out here, Moses? Uh, So I'll read a little bit from Numbers 21. Numbers 21, 5 and 6 says this. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Snakes, just kind of apropos considering, you know, what we're reading in terms of Acts 28. Uh, and it goes on to say that the people got, you know, they got all repenty and everything like that. And, uh, and Moses goes, what should, I, what should I do? And the Lord says, well, make sort of a, like a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And anybody who's repenty and looks at the bronze serpent will get healed. And this, this piece of imagery was so significant that Jesus mentions it to Nicodemus, you know, right before Genesis Three, I mean, John 3, 16, there's John 3, 14, and 15, where Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, is it really, you know, anyone ever heard this, like, spoken on this story, like, preached on? Okay, anytime I've ever heard it, they're like, and bronze is a reddish metal, which symbolizes the blood of Christ. I don't really know, okay? Is it really important that the, that the, that the metal is reddish in nature? It doesn't really matter uh, to me, I think, it, you know, my speculation. But more importantly, um, Jesus has drawn a very, very deliberate parallel between the snake, the bronze serpent, as a symbol uh, of, of healing and what happened to Jesus on the cross and the significance of his crucifixion for our healing, for our salvation, right? Um, then we move on from Numbers 21 to Numbers 25, which happens to be one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Uh, some of my favorite portions of Scripture, like a lot of people die. I don't, <laughs> you know, First Kings 18 and Elijah, like after he's done with the prophets of Mount Carmel, like 150 of them die. Um, not really the portion I'm focusing on, but every like people just seem to die in my favorite portions of Scripture. Uh, I think I need to talk to my therapist about that. But in Numbers 21. The Israelites are rebelling. They're kind of uh, consorting with Moabite women and not in an evangelistic way, uh, in a rather naughty way. Uh, And so the Lord sends a plague. And um, so all the priests are gathered before the tabernacle and they're getting all, you know, know, rendering, running their clothes and sackcloth and ashes and everything. And this guy with a whole lot of hubris brings this Moabite woman and delivers it to another Israelite man. And they kind of take off to the tent. And Phineas, 
uh, one of the priests is kind of like, well, that kind of hacks me off. And so he takes a spear, goes into the tent, and runs them both through into the ground and kills them both. And God says, plague over. High five, Phineas. <laughs> right? No, no, go read Numbers 25. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the paraphrased version. That's not the actual... <laughs> he doesn't high five him, but like, you know, the, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of high fives. And even, even like makes a covenant with Phineas, which people like never remember. Um, but you see the fact that what is being done is that illness is being visited for covenantal disobedience. And healing and deliverance is being, is being given for zeal for the Lord's name, for his agenda, for, his co- for the covenant with God, for his kingdom, etc., etc., etc. And we kind of think, well, gosh, you know, it seems like God's, God's judgment seems sometimes a little bit arbitrary. But it actually really isn't. Um, I'm sure that, you know, Skinner talks about, you know, covenants and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, always a little bit of review is never a bad thing. Uh, when we talk about covenants, covenants are basically treaties between people. And there are different types of treaties. Obviously, the one between God's people and God is one between, you know, unequal parties. Um, and the covenants have a particular structure, right? So God's agenda in history is the furtherance of his kingdom for his glory and for the, for the good of his people. Uh, and that kingdom is administrated by successive covenants. Make sense? Like just different ways of arranging his relationship to his people uh, for, the, for the kingdom. So kingdom, covenants, and then each one of the covenants has officers, right? Officers that sort of administrate it and sort of deal with, because, you know, you don't actually walk up to God and talk about the covenant. You talk to his representatives, right? Uh, and covenants have a particular structure, and they basically, you don't have to remember the fancy names for them. They go by, they basically are answers to very easy questions and very reasonable questions when you're talking about a treaty. Who's in charge, right? Obviously, God is. Who do I answer to? And those would be the covenant officers, usually prophets, priests, and kings, depending on you know, what your issue is. Um, you have what are the rules, which is God's law. You have what do I get if I obey, and what happens to me if I disobey, which would be the uh, oaths and sanctions, or what's called cursings and curses and blessings. And then you have how does this arrangement persist through the future, you know, to you and to your, to your offspring after you. Now, of course, when we're talking about covenantal curses, uh, which is kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about illness versus, versus healing, uh, there are two chapters which come to mind very, very, uh, very, very uh, poignantly. Sorry. <laughs> Searching for a word. It wasn't there. Um, uh, uh, Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 28 are basically the two chapters in Scripture which deal with uh, how God deals with covenantal disobedience. And if you read through the prophets, if you read through Ezekiel, when Ezekiel starts talking about, you know, things that are going to happen to the naughty Israelites, the imagery is coming straight from Leviticus 23. I mean, just straight from Leviticus 20. So if you know the law, if you know the Torah, uh, then you understand what he's talking about, right? Um, but I'm going to read, a, I'm going to read, I basically have pulled verses out of Deuteronomy 28, all of which deal with, uh, with the, basically the, con- like the health consequences of, of being, you know, naughty little Israelites. Uh, and indeed, one of the children of Israel came and... Pre- no, that's... Oh, next page. Sorry. The Lord will make uh, the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever. 
The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed. And from the soles of your foot to the top of your head. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sickness. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. This is a theme which, which though we, unfortunately, because we live in our medicalized society, tend to ignore. This is a theme which is very, very strong and very, very persistent through the scriptures. And it winds up being a wonderful symbol, though always not a one-to-one sort of correspondence between healing winds up being a symbol of covenantal faithfulness. Illness is a symbol, though you know, not a one-to-one thing. You know, did this man sin or did his parents? No, no one sinned. This you know, happened so that he could, you know, glory to God, blah, blah, blah. Okay. It's a, like, so basically the symbolic significance needs to, needs to be sort of appreciated in terms of uh, what healing is and what sickness is so that when it happens in a narrative, we know why. That it's more than just a mere parlor trick to sort of get a little bit of attention before you start, you know, dropping the good news on somebody, okay? Now, we see this theme not only in the Torah, uh, but we also see it in the wisdom literature. We remember that Job was stricken by disease after the Lord allowed Satan to reach out and actually affect his body. Uh, We remember that David in the Psalms, and not a few of the Psalms, if you, you know, get past your favorites and actually read all of them, uh, he actually basically wishes bad like disease on his enemies like he basically he's like god get him and make their you know hair grow green and their toenails fall out and you know all sorts of weird weird stuff like that uh but i mean he knows that the lord visits illness on people uh who are under his curse and so david asks god to make good on that we see in the historical books uh, elisha's healing of naaman the syrian comes to mind uh, it also comes to Luke's mind. I mean, he mentions it right after the control verse uh, in, the, in Luke 4. Uh, and we also see it in the prophetic literature, because like I said, we, uh, we, see, um, we see the prophets basically telling people as they bring these, what are basically covenant lawsuits against the disobedient people. We see all this imagery coming forth, and the prophet's going, God promised that he would, he would not be happy with you, and he would do bad things to get your attention if you disobeyed him. And I'm telling you, you're disobeying, and, and it's, it's going to come down, and it's not going to be pretty, right? Uh, so we see it all the way through there. Now, we turn to the New Testament. We can't survey all the Gospels. Since we're in Acts, which is, you know, the sequel to Luke, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll... I just want to read a couple of things that actually uh, have... Um, that basically come up in Luke. But before I do, I forgot to to put this into my outline. But I want to read what is considered by many to be the control verse of all of Luke. And basically what Luke's, uh, his thesis statement is in terms of uh, what he's trying to accomplish in telling this tale about Jesus' ministry, his death, his uh, resurrection, his ascension, 
and of course in Acts, what happens to his church as it persists through time. So he came to Nazareth, I'm in Luke 4 starting in 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, that imagery right there is imagery from um, the Jubilee. He was basically saying that uh, God's kingdom is coming, all of, the, all of the symbolism that's tied up in the Sabbath and in the Jubilee and basically the rescuing of the disenfranchised and the, the helping of the poor and giving liberty to slaves and everything like that, all of that is coming to fruition now. Uh, and we see basically that manifested as we move through Luke, and I'm just going to list some of the stuff in Luke, and this is not an exhaustive list at all. Just right after that, he heals Peter's mother-in-law in 4, 36 to 41. He cleanses a leper in chapter 5. He heals a paralytic in chapter 5. He heals a man's hand on the Sabbath, kind of a bone of contention in chapter 6. In chapter 6, he heals a multitude. So he just kind of like, you know, people lined up and just came, and like assembly line, one at a time. Um, he heals a centurion's servant in chapter 7, raises the son of the widow of Nain in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he heals the gathering demoniac. And, of course, we can talk at another time about the relationship between deliverance and healing. Jairus' daughter and the, women, and the woman who hemorrhaged for 12 years in chapter 8. In chapter 9, a boy is healed. In 13, Jesus heals on the Sabbath again. In 14, a man with dropsy is healed. In, 10, the t- in chapter 17, the 10 lepers are cleansed. And in 18, a blind man receives his sight. And after that, it sort of moves on into the passion narrative. So not a, small, not a small theme that's running through Luke. And, of course, in Acts, the, the theme pops up as well in numerous, in numerous parts. Um, I won't you know, list those off as well. But it should not be a surprise that in Acts, uh, the church continues that ministry. Because Jesus says in, uh, in the Gospel of John, Most assuredly I say to you that he who believes in me The works that I will do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Almost as if we are the continuing incarnation of Jesus to the world. It's not an accident that we as his church are his body. That that imagery is not accidental. We are his continuing incarnation. We are the vehicle of his grace and his mercy and his healing to the world around us, okay, for the furtherance of his kingdom, for the furtherance of his glory, and for the good of his people, right? Now, like I said, this is not, uh, this is not just to get attention. These are not parlor tricks. It's not like gimmick evangelism, right? You know what gimmick evangelism is? It's the whole bait and switch. It's the, hey, come out. We'll listen to really good rock and roll music. Hey, look, I don't really want to talk about rock and roll music. I want to shove the gospel down your throat, right? This is not gimmick evangelism, right? Because there's a disconnect there between the bait and switch, right? This is not a bait and switch because the healing reveals the nature of the kingdom that the message is about. What is God's kingdom like? God's kingdom is a kingdom of healing, of wholeness, 
spiritual and bodily wholeness. And that's, and that's basically, it's, it's part of the vehicle. It's part of the message. It's not just the, you know, uh, just the hook, so to speak. Right? Now, um, when I run through things like this, I can't help it. I, I, a couple of years ago, I stumbled onto something that I found very helpful in terms of, uh, that wasn't a laugh thing. That was actually me just scratching my ear. Um, I stumbled onto something that I found very, very helpful, uh, which is, I just run things through Jesus's as a fulfillment of the covenant offices. So when I run through themes like this, I want to understand it uh, in terms of the covenant office of prophet, in terms of the covenant office of priest, and in terms of the covenant office of king, right? Because uh, those are, you know, like I said, kingdom, covenants, and the covenants are administrated by officers, prophets, priests, and kings. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So when we look at prophets, and of course prophets, their job is to... Uh, speak truth, uh, offer new revelation, and give proper interpretation of existing revelation, right? That's kind of what a prophet does. And he also brings covenant lawsuits. He becomes the prosecuting attorney and the, wit- and the, and the witness, the first sort of witness, for the, for the covenant lawsuit that is being brought against the people, okay? Now, under the prophetic, we've already really touched on the first one in terms that bodily wholeness winds up being symbolic, uh, though, like I said, not necessarily with a one-to-one relationship with covenantal obedience and good standing. Okay? Basically, the prophet is the one that would have been alluding to Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 23 and telling people that well, the judgment's coming down the pike and um, I'm not going to have any pleasure in telling I told you so afterwards. Okay? Uh, now, the second, the second aspect of the way that this fits into the popular, uh, the, the, that fits under sort of the prophetic sort of umbrella is actually the popular version of this. The fact that these are meant to get attention, right? These are meant to validate the message. It's just that that's not the only point of the healings, right? Uh, And, you know, that has scriptural support. Uh, We see in John 20, John says this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life, in his name. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at these as validations uh, and basically a way of showing the legitimacy of the message that is coming first from Jesus and then, of course, later from his apostles. But that is not the only reason for it. And we see when we sort of take a look at the healing under the guise of priestly, and these all kind of blend together. Now, the priests were, the priests were in charge of um, sacrifices and offerings. They were in charge of caring for the, the house of God, being the temple, and just generally reconciliation sort of issues, right? Uh, and so, of course, in our day and age, the body of Christ, we, the church, collectively as a people, are his temple, and therefore the priestly attitude of, you know, that's why, you know, he's your pastor, but he kind of plays the priestly role, like, because he cares as the head pastor here, for this portion of God's flock. Um, when we see that, we, we see the whole idea of the actual healing of the people and the way that the healing takes place and sort of the organic nature in which, um, you know, the fact that the word that the word that's translated saved in the New Testament actually also has a connotation of meaning to heal. That's not, that's not incidental. Uh, and then when we move to the kingly, which we sometimes have a harder time because we know Jesus is king, right? We just have no idea how it impacts our day-to-day life. Um, 
And so when we move to the king, we've got to remember that when the king, Jesus himself, and of course when his ambassadors, being the apostles and us after him, come up against uh, and butt up against in that, initial, in that you know, understandable conflict uh, that's going to arise when one kingdom comes in contact with another kingdom, uh, when he heals somebody, when we heal somebody, when the apostles heal somebody, that is a claim of dominion over that person. That person, Jesus says, is not in your dominion. He is mine. And those things that are symbolic of the kingdom of darkness and disobedience, I will drive out of him, and I will bring him to me. And that is Jesus' agenda. Unless we think that this thing, these things don't happen anymore, these healings, you, you'll love this. Uh, the father of a friend of mine happens to be a missionary in India. Uh, impressive man. Uh, he actually was nominated for the Peace Prize three times by Mother Teresa herself, because they were buds. Yeah. yeah, he's telling me this, and I'm like, you, who? <laughs> so when he's back stateside, he occasionally goes to like, be a spiritual advisor to people. So he was in Hollywood hanging out with Mel Gibson. I'm not kidding. That's not the point of the story. I just, I just, I just think he's like the coolest man alive. I mean, they need, they need to like somebody needs to write a book about his life because, and he's just so like, he's so like, well, whatever, you know, yeah, sure, right. Just hanging out with Mel Gibson. So a friend of his in Sacramento calls him, and he goes to Sacramento, and a guy had gotten into a motorcycle accident, and his spine had been severed. Like you actually see the X-rays, his spine is severed. Three days of praying over this man, the guy walked out of the hospital. Three days later, walked, walked out of the high school, and about 12, this guy was from a Jewish family, 12 of his family members converted, like that. Healing is still a real, real part of our ministry and of the continuing ministry of the church. And if you don't have that gift of healing, uh, first thing I would say is, if you want it, pray for it. And if, you, and if you're not granted that gift, uh, you can still do things by going and visiting the sick in the hospital and caring for them, taking them a meal, spending time in. Enough people stay away from the hospital because they're weirded out by it. Uh, but if you have the time and the wherewithal, go and pray with them. Okay? And that's a real way that we can be engaged in this ministry of healing. Okay? Now, how does this really tie back to the portion of Scripture that we read today? Well, I mean, you know, sort of Paul kind of healed himself. I mean, I guess in a way of speaking, because he wasn't affected by it. Because Paul was a symbol of that kingdom and an ambassador par excellence. It's almost as if Paul is a walking, living sacrament of the grace and of the purpose and the meaning and the symbolism of the kingdom with which he is a part and for which he brings a message of reconciliation. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a walking, that's really the only way I can really describe it. He's a walking sacrament because he is a walking vehicle. He is a tangible, real vehicle of God's grace to a broken, sick world that really needs Jesus, and we're the ones to bring it to him. And so may that be said of us. May it be said of us as we go out and engage in our particular vocations, as we engage in our particular callings, the way that the Lord has called us to represent him and to push his kingdom forward and to glorify his name. 
may they look at us and say, that man, that woman, is a walking sacrament of, the, of God Most High. Amen?